Our study of the epistle of certainties, as 1 John is often called, is drawing to a close very shortly. We're in the final chapter, and in what has been termed, as far as a section of this epistle, the conclusion section, the section in which John draws to a conclusion the beautiful inspired thoughts that he has expressed by the direction of the Holy Spirit so that those who read these things that are written may indeed have and enjoy the blessings that John himself depicts in this epistle itself, the blessing of knowing that we have eternal life about which we'll speak again tonight because John writes about it as we studied in the previous verses last week. The great blessing of assurance, the knowledge that we are in Christ, that we have those blessings. The songs we have just sung really emphasize that knowledge that we have. Not speculation, not having to doubt, but knowing. I know my name is written there. I know my name is there. Can we sing that song, that great hymn, with confidence? Indeed, we can. I can know that I am in the fold. Yes, indeed, I can know that. How is it that I may know these things? John tells us how it is that we may know these things by bringing our lives into harmony with the things that are revealed to us by John and by the other inspired writers of the New Testament. And so tonight we look at three verses, verses 13 through 15 of 1 John 5, as John begins to draw to a close his inspired thoughts in this great epistle. And so he reminds his readers these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And here it is again, that you may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. These things may refer immediately to the things he has just written, but certainly they could apply to everything he has written in all of this epistle. But remember in the verses immediately preceding verse 13, he has written about the eternal life that belongs to the believer. And we talked about it last time. Verse 11, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Verse 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And we talked about the fact that eternal life is in the possession of the obedient believer in promise or in prospect. That indeed, we have it, but it is a conditional possession, if you will. It is not something that we possess that can never be taken from us. And we reinforce that point here because John comes back to reemphasize that which he has just written in the previous verses as he says, you may know you may know that you have eternal life. But notice before he mentions that knowledge, he says, I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And the believe there is in the present tense. In other words, it's in the tense that indicates those who keep on believing. I'm writing to those who keep on believing in the name 
of the Son of God. And that's important for us to appreciate because it is those and only those who keep on believing in the name of the Son of God, and we'll talk about what the name of the Son of God of God involves in just a moment in the last usage of it here in this uh, same verse. But it's important for us to realize that only those who keep on believing are those who may know that they have eternal life. Thus John reemphasizes that which is clearly and abundantly taught throughout the New Testament, and that is that the possession of eternal life is conditional conditioned upon our continued belief. And so John says, I'm writing to you who keep on believing, that's the tense, therefore that has to be clearly what John is saying, not those who have been baptized for the remission of sins, but may not be living as you should now. No, not a once saved, always saved proposition, because the Bible clearly denies such. Hundreds, literally hundreds of times, the Bible denies the false premise or Uh, assertion that once one is saved, he's always saved. John says, to those who keep on believing, you may know, you have the certainty that you have eternal life as long as you keep on believing. Just simply to review a few passages that we talked about last time because we were discussing this, this very same topic because John was writing about the eternal life in verses 11 and 12 as we reviewed a moment ago. But remember that in this same epistle, at chapter 2 of 1 John and verse 25, John himself wrote this, and this is the promise that he has promised us, dash, eternal life. And this is the what? The promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Now, did John meet himself coming back, so to speak? Did John contradict himself by saying that, Eternal life is ours as a promise, and then later saying, as we are now studying, that we have eternal life in reality unconditionally with no possibility of forfeiting that eternal life? Well, of course not. He is perfectly consistent with himself and with every other inspired writer of the New Testament because when he says, those who believe, that is, keep on believing, you have eternal life, is the very same thing he wrote in different wording in 1 John 2.25. This is the promise which he has promised us, eternal life. In other words, it's a promise to those who what? Who keep on believing in the name of the Son of God. But oh, what an assurance it is to know that as we continue to follow God's will, we have that wonderful hope. But remember a verse we looked at last time. That's what eternal life is, hope. For us. In other words, it is yet unrealized. It is not something that we have in reality that cannot be taken away. One day it will be if we continue to be obedient believers in the Christ. One day we will have eternal life that cannot be taken from us in eternity and for all eternity. But remember in Titus 1 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul wrote, In hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life? Well, if it is in hope of eternal life, then it clearly means that it is not ours as a realized possession, doesn't it? It is not ours, is it? Titus 1 verse 2, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, 
promised before time began. John says in 1 John 2, 25, this is the promise which he promised us, eternal life. Paul says the same thing, in promise of eternal, or in hope of eternal life, which God has promised, which God has promised. Now, we also pointed out last time that one does not hope for that which one already possesses. So if Paul writes in Titus 1, verse 2, that we live in hope of eternal life, it means that we're looking forward to it and we don't already have it in reality except only in promise. And Paul made that very argument as we noted last time in Romans chapter 8. Remember at verse 24. Remember Titus 1-2 says we live in hope of eternal life. But in Romans 8-24 the same writer, the apostle Paul says this. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Paul says you don't hope for what you already see. You don't hope for what you already have. Hope is desire coupled with expectation. If I already have eternal life unconditionally, then I don't live in hope of eternal life. I've already got it. But the New Testament says I live in hope of eternal life. I live in the promise of eternal life. Therefore, I don't have eternal life unconditionally. I only have it in promise I only hope for it, but I have the assurance and the confidence that as long as I keep on believing in the name of the Son of God, I one day will have it as an everlasting possession that cannot be taken away. How tragic it is, however, that so many in the religious world today contend that they already have it in a way that it cannot be taken away. The Bible teaches no such thing. The Bible clearly teaches just the opposite. But while we cannot and do not have eternal life in unconditional fashion, that does not lessen or diminish at all the confidence that we are to have in Christ Jesus. Because we're still to be confident. We can still say that we know that we know Him. We can still say that our name is written there. How so? John has told us time and again in this epistle, as do the other New Testament writers. By simply continuing to do the will of God. By doing the will of Christ. Now that brings us back to this name that is used twice in verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What does that involve? He goes on to say that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I want you to continue to keep on believing in the name of the Son of God. You are believing now. Keep on believing in the name of the Son of God. But what does it mean to believe in the name of the Son of God? It obviously means more than to simply give mental agreement to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Now John, many times in this first epistle, as we have already seen, has dealt with the Gnostic heresy. The Gnostics who didn't believe that Jesus really came in the flesh or that he only appeared to have a fleshly body, the various uh, uh, sects of the, uh, of the Gnostics, the Serinthians and the Docetics, who had somewhat differing beliefs, but who basically denied uh, the deity of Christ or his humanity, one or the other, thus denying the Christ, in effect. So obviously, believing in the name of the Son of God would include believing that he is indeed the Christ who came to this earth, lived as a human being as well as, as deity, and died literally on the cross of Christ. But that's far from being 
the totality of what we are to believe if we truly believe in the name of the Son of God. To believe in the name of the Son of God and to keep on believing in the name of the Son of God is to believe everything that is associated with the Son of God. All of his attributes, all of his characteristics, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his will that he has left for us. As he promised the apostles to guide them into all truth, he has done just that. The apostles and the other inspired writers. And Jesus said before he left this world, the words that I have spoken, the same will judge you in the last day. He who rejects me and does not receive my word has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So to believe in the name of the Son of God is to believe in the will of the Son of God. That is, His authority. And where is that authority deposited now, today, and for all time to come? It's right here. Therefore, to believe in the name of the Son of God, I must bring my life into harmony with the Son of God's revealed will. Where is that revealed will? It is in the New Testament. He who rejects me and does not receive my word has that which judges him. If you don't receive my words, you've got something that's going to judge you in the last day. What is it, Lord? The word that I have spoken. The word that I have authorized, in other words. Remember in Matthew 28, 18, beginning in Matthew's account of the Great Commission, Jesus came to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Where are the all things that Jesus has commanded? Here. Therefore, to believe in his name is to believe in his authority, his authority which has now been deposited forevermore upon the pages of the New Testament. We see an example of this demonstrated for us in Acts chapter 8. When Philip went down to Samaria to preach to the Samaritans, Acts 8 and verse 12 well, verse 5 says he went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Then if we skip over to verse 12, after he arrived and began to preach, listen to what is said about what he preached. It's very, very important. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, stop right there. What is the kingdom of God in the New Testament? It's the church of Christ. It's the church of the Lord. It is the pre-denominational church of Christ. He preached the kingdom. The kingdom and church, those are used interchangeably throughout Scripture. We've clearly pointed that out time and time again. Upon this rock I'll build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I'll give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven and church being used interchangeably. So when Philip went down to Samaria and preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, he preached the things concerning the church. The kingdom of God. And so, verse 12 says, when they believed, when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, now listen to this, and the name of Jesus Christ 
What did Philip preach when he preached the name of Jesus Christ? Well, John is talking about the name of the Son of God here. Is he talking about something different than Philip preached about? No. When he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, he preached concerning Christ's authority. He preached concerning every attribute and characteristic of the Christ, including His authority and that He is the Lord in Christ, and therefore what He has said and what He has authorized must be obeyed. And part of that, according to Acts 8.12, was baptism, wasn't it? Because when they believed Philip, when they believed Philip, as he preached what? The things concerning the kingdom of God, the church, the name of Jesus Christ, that's everything involved in what Christ has authorized or has not authorized, which would encompass a great deal of material, wouldn't it? Then they were what? Both men and women were baptized. Therefore, preaching the name of Christ and the things concerning the kingdom of God also included baptism. Otherwise, where did they hear of it? Where did they hear of it? Through Philip's preaching. But go back to verse 5. Philip went down to Samaria and preached Christ to them. When you look at verse 12, you see a better picture, don't you, of what it means to preach Christ. Not just his name, meaning give mental agreement to the fact that he is the Christ. But to preach Christ was to preach the church. To preach Christ was to preach Christ's authority in all religious, spiritual matters. To preach the Christ was to preach baptism. Otherwise, how would they have ever known to have been baptized? And that's the same thing also as preaching the gospel. Because when you go to verse, twi- 12, verse 25 rather, of Acts 8, you see this. In the same context in which Philip went down and preached Christ which involved preaching the kingdom of God, the name of Christ, or the authority of Christ, and baptism. Verse 25 says, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, to preach Christ is to preach the word of the Lord, which involves the kingdom, the church, baptism, etc. Then what? They returned to Jerusalem preaching what now? Preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Is there any difference in preaching the gospel and preaching the word of the Lord? No. Any difference in preaching the gospel and preaching the word of the Lord and preaching Christ? No. Any difference in preaching the gospel and preaching the word of the Lord and preaching the Christ and preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and preaching the name or the authority of the Christ and preaching baptism? No. It's all encompassed in the preaching that we must do and that men and women of accountable age must obey. And when they do, they have believed in the name of the Son of God. And as they continue to submit to the name of the Son of God by submitting to His authority in the New Testament, they have eternal life. And when they stop believing and obeying, then they no longer have that life. That gets us back to verses 11 and 12 we studied last time. And this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life. And this life is where? In His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Therefore, when I turn my back upon the teachings of Christ, I turn my back upon the Christ. And when I do, 
I lose the life that is in the Son. I'm still breathing, but I really don't have life anymore. And the greatest tragedy is to finish one's breathing in that condition and to never know life again. I'm not saying you'll be annihilated when you die. You'll be, you'll be uh, an existing spirit, but with no life because there'll be no sun. And without the sun, there is no life. If that doesn't sober the thinking of anyone who needs to respond to the gospel of Christ and obeying it initially or coming home to one's first love, then I fail, and words fail me, to be able to express it in any more sobering terms. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, keep on believing, that you, who are believing, Keep on believing that you may know you have eternal life and continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And what follows that? Verse 14. That brings about a confidence that John writes about here when he says, Now this is the confidence that we have, but where? In Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And here, John connects the confidence that they continue continuing believer has in eternal life, he ties it directly here in verse 14 to prayer and the beautiful privilege of prayer that belongs to the faithful child of God. That faithful child of God, the one who keeps on believing in his name with everything that believing in his name involves as we've just talked about it, that one has a confidence Sometimes this word confidence is translated boldness. It literally carries the idea of, of openness and freedom, generally associated with freedom of speech, to speak plainly, to speak openly. Well, in this case, he applies it to speaking openly to the Father, doesn't he? Those who continue to believe can speak openly to the Father in heaven. If that is not a privilege that is difficult to adequately describe, then again, I fail to be able to describe a privilege that even comes close to the contemplation that the child of God has in the confidence that he has to approach the throne of heaven through his mediator and high priest, Jesus Christ. By the same token, when we fail to believe and do not continue to believe, we no longer have that confidence. But for the faithful believer, we have the confidence to approach him in prayer. And let me add something. We also have the confidence to approach him in the judgment. If we're faithful unto death, we can actually go to the judgment not trembling, but with confidence. John tells us that. You remember 1 John 2.28 in one of our earlier studies in this series? Listen to it again. And now, little children, abide in Him. Any difference in abiding in Him and keeping on believing? No, they're one and the same, obviously. To abide in Him, to abide in Him is to keep on believing in Him faithfully. Little children, abide in Him that when He appears we may have confidence. There's the same word that we have right here in 1 John 5.14. Same word. 
that we may have confidence, but in 1 John 2.28, what is the context? That we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Just as John now tells us that the obedient believer can approach God through Christ in prayer confidently, openly, freely, he'll be able to approach standing before God and Christ in judgment with that same confidence. Not arrogance, but confidence. Knowing, gets us back to the epistle of certainties, knowing that we know him. So we have confidence, if we're obedient believers, that if we ask anything, period, he hears us? No. Even for the faithful child of God, there's a stipulation here, isn't there? What's the stipulation? That if we ask him according to his will. And so obviously, if we petition God for something that's contrary to his will, he's not going to violate his will. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to make sure that our petitions are within His will in terms of falling within the parameters of prayer that are set forth for us in Scripture. Praying to the Father through Christ, our mediator, for one thing. Approaching Him humbly. Approaching Him what? Confidently, without doubting. Remember what James says? He who doubts is like the surge of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. Don't think that if you doubt that you'll receive anything, James tells us. And so, one of the stipulations of God's will about prayer from the obedient child is to approach Him without doubting, without wavering, without being double-minded, as James says. And so, in other words, our prayers must be in accordance with His will. But if they are, we have the absolute assurance that He hears us. And then in the final verse, at which we look tonight, John says, and what? And if, if we know that he hears us, and we do know that, he's just told us that in the previous verse. The idea here is since we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. But again, it ties back to the qualifying phrase in the previous verse, according to his will. And God will always answer us. He will always answer us in accordance with His will. But go back with me to 1 John 3 and verse 22, where John earlier wrote, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. And listen to what he says here, remember it? Because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Asking in accordance with his will involves asking as one who is what? Keeping his commandments. John makes that abundantly clear in 1 John 3.22. Prayer is one of the greatest reassurances that any individual could ever have. Reassured that as we pray, God hears. Reassured that as we pray, he not only hears but he will answer. He will answer in terms of what's best for us. Will he always say yes? No. He may say no because no may be best for us and God knows what's best for us. But he will hear and he will answer if we what? Keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight.
What about you tonight? As we close, can you say that you have the kind of confidence about which John has written in these verses? Do you have that confidence that you can approach the God of heaven through Jesus Christ in prayer and know that he hears and know that he will answer? You can only do that if you know you're living in harmony with his will. That's what John, the inspired writer, has told us, because we keep his commandments. And so tonight, if you're not keeping his commandments, we plead with you to begin to do that this very night. Either in becoming a Christian, if you haven't done that, by a belief that leads you to repent of your sins, confess Jesus as the Christ, and to be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Or as one who has done that, but knows he or she has not lived in a way that is in harmony with God's will. And that's known publicly. It needs to be repented of in that same public way. Come home. Come home to brothers and sisters. Most importantly, come home to the Father who loves you and who longs to hear from you again with petitions that are pleasing in His sight because you are living in accordance with His will. Petitions that He will answer in terms of what's best for you. And that's the promise. The absolute certain promise that awaits every disobedient individual who is willing to become obedient. And for all those who need no repentance, that's the reassurance and the promise that you continue to have. And oh, how sweet to pillow your head even this very night, knowing that that promise is still intact. If you need to respond, will you come now as we stand to sing?